Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast. On today's episode, we have Dr. Linda Dillon-Jones, our Senior Consultant for Leadership and Faculty Development here in the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine Office of Faculty Development. Welcome to my basement, Linda. How are you? (laughs) It's great to be here, Kim. (laughs) Also, I want to be sure and say that I consider one of my real achievements at Hopkins was the fact that I found you and was able to recruit you into the position that you now hold when I was the interim way back yeah. How many years 2013. Quite a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, folks, it, this is one of those uh, God things where I went to a GFA, the Group on Faculty Affairs Professional Development Conference in 2012, and uh, Hopkins had put an ad out for an assistant dean for faculty development, and I was then working in that Rush University Medical Center in Chicago directing the research mentoring program, and I was so excited about applying for this job, and I had applied for it, and there I met... Uh, Dr. Linda Dillon-Jones and her colleague, now my colleague, Dr. Barbara Fivush, and I went to their talk. And at the end of their talk, they said, now, if you're interested in this position, we have a whole stack of announcements at the back of the room. And I jumped up and I thought, I have to get those announcements out of here because I applied for that job and I want that job. And then I remember meeting you and Barbara and we sat down and just talked for like over an hour at the poster session. We had the best time. And my strategy then was I liked you so much that I thought if I made too big a deal of it, people would, you know, people when you're hiring mistrust if you just like somebody a lot, you know, they kind of get a little like, ooh, what's going on between these two women, you know, so I didn't press it too much because I thought I don't want to jinx it, you know, they will like her on their own way, in their own way. It was perfect. So yeah, so that was six years ago, well, seven years ago when I met you, Mm -hmm. and then I've been at Hopkins now six years, and Linda is, has the credit of building all of our leadership programs. I mean, Mm -hmm. all of them, the School of Medicine, the two in the OWISM, the Office of Women in Science and Medicine, the junior faculty co-ed one in ours. Mm-hmm. So Linda is um, just one of these folks who is extremely talented, hugely popular, has the best stories <laughs> ever. Been You're so fortunate kind. that we've You're been able to keep kind. her. And now I dragged her down here in my basement to do this podcast. So Linda... Uh, there are people listening all around the world, and some of them are at the stages of their career where they may be thinking about getting into faculty development, or maybe they hold a faculty development role in their division or the department. Right. So they're kind of gearing up or trying to grab a toolkit and figure out what this whole space is about. Right. Could you, um, or maybe some people don't even know about it, but they, they aspire to do it, but they think, well, I don't have the qualifications to do this. Right. I'm not... I don't have any degree or training in this. Would you mind sharing your personal story of how you ultimately ended up in this role? Well, one thing I want to be sure and tell the women out there um, is that I've been at Hopkins 25 years now, and I'd been at NC State in Raleigh 14 years before that. And I had built a program in training and development, uh, Applied Behavioral Sciences program, and I'd been recommended by my department for full professors, so I'd been a very successful academic. The program was huge because there hadn't been a program in the state, and all these people who were working in the field were looking for master's and doctoral degrees. And so when I got ready to leave there, all my girlfriends were like, I was coming up here to get married, you know, my husband, Kit, and he was a government bureaucrat, so he couldn't move to Raleigh, although he tried, but he just wasn't going to be able to find a job. 
uh, in the Internal Revenue Service in Raleigh. And uh, so when I told my girlfriends I was giving up tenure and this program I built and moving to Washington, they all said, well, we want to meet this guy. You know, you're not going anywhere until we meet him. And when I came up here, I didn't really know that. Oh, and the other thing that happened is I had a dizziness problem at that time, probably because I was so stressed out and it made me look inebriated. And I did have jobs, uh, job interviews at about six different places in the DC area. And I showed up with a cane walking like I was inebriated. And I thought, I will never find a job ever, ever, ever again. And I'm giving up my whole career and won't it be terrible. But it actually worked out better. Uh, because Hopkins pays better than a state university. They put more money aside for retirement. And one thing I didn't expect at the time is that I would be able to continue to work part-time after I retired. I've been here uh, eight years. I've been retired eight years now. Eight years. No way. I think it's been that long. And um, maybe only six. Yeah, because I've been here six years. Okay, then, then six years. And so, um, so I want to encourage women to believe that it is possible to recreate a, a successful career somewhere else, even if you don't have a job when you make that move. That's right. Because I'm not sure I even believed it at the time, <laughs> which is why I had that dizziness problem that was making me crazy. So, but yeah, I was able to recreate it. But so go tell people who are, um, your background that led you into this skill set of building leadership programs and academic medicine? Well, I actually kind of fell into it. Um, I was um, a young girl. I'm 70 year old now, 70 years old now in 2019. And I was a young girl in the 50s. And that was back in the time where if your skirts were too short, you were a slut. You know, you could not wear short skirts. And I'm very tall. So I learned to sew um, in order to have skirts long enough. And that, and so my auntie, who was a home ec teacher, and this was back in the days when girls could either be a secretary or a teacher or a mother, you know, right. that's how old I am. And she said, well, you should study home ec. So I got a home ec undergraduate degree because I already knew how to sew, and that's a big part of it. And so my undergraduate degree uh, got me a job in on, uh, a company that was based in New York City called Vogue Butterick. Oh, yeah. Women were right. sewing on polyester double knits back then. <laughs> and so I got this fabulous, glamorous job traveling the Midwest, putting on sewing demonstrations. And they paid for my car and my wardrobe. It couldn't have been any more fabulous. It was just wonderful. Uh, but I hated living in this very expensive area outside of... Um, uh, I, I hated the traveling because I was always traveling. And then when I moved to New York to take a job with American Thread... They still weren't paying women enough. Mm. I mean, I remember my annual salary was seven thousand dollars, and my rent was almost that much. Oh, you know? awesome! Wonderful. So anyway, I wound up moving to North Carolina, and eventually, I got a job teaching uh, marketing education in high school. But I wasn't—I didn't have a teacher certificate, so I got a master's degree, which helped me get certified to teach. And so then I had two vocational areas covered, home ec 
and marketing education. And that made me really well qualified. I went to Ohio State and got my doctorate in education, but in I majored in vocational education, which is certifying teachers in vocational programs. Uh-huh. And that got me my first job at NC State. But the problem then became um, I had to create a new program. And when you create a new curriculum for a university, it takes about two years to get it uh, approved. So I started teaching training and development during that interim. And then I created that program. And so once that program was approved, they let me stay in that area. Uh And so that's how I moved into the field of training and development. And then I lumped onto leadership development as an area, mostly because it's just so interesting. Yeah. And so that was the beginning of my work in leadership development. And when I came up here to Hopkins and interviewed, um, we had really very little we had not, no leadership development 25 years ago. Uh, we had financial training and IT training, but that was about it. And so a very wonderful colleague, uh, Dr. Richard Kilberg, met me because I was just going around interviewing with people. And he said, wow, you know, you could really create this program for us. And so that's how it all started. Unbelievable. So did you... Were you one of these people who just had a gift and innate talent for seeing what a program should look like? Or had you been trained on how to build programs? Yeah. I know you're a big reader. So uh, how did you come up with the actual the courses and what were the competencies or the framework right. for these things? I'm always, always curious how you did this and did it so well that it's been duplicated across Johns Hopkins University. Well, that's an interesting problem because... Dick kept wanting me to go interview people and find out what they thought we needed. And I would say to Dick, how would they know Dick? (laughs) They've never had any training. You've never had training here. They've never been through it. And there are libraries of skill sets. So one thing we did early on is, um, and we did all of that. We did focus groups with department chairs saying, what do you think the faculty need to know? And they were right. One of the things they said was conflict resolution was really the primary thing they wanted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and But the thing that we did that gave me the most confidence is we used a, uh, an assessment from Personnel Decisions International, a 360-degree assessment mm-hmm. uh, called the Profiler. Right. And that had um, 155 statements of management and leadership skills. And you fill it out on yourself. Your boss fills it out on you. So do all your direct reports and as many colleagues as you want to give it to. And we would give people this assessment and then they would give a report. They would get a report back. And it's expensive. I mean, it was about $150 per person back then. Wow. So you do have to make some commitment to get that kind of um, data back. But it gave us a training report then, a cumulative training report every year. I could get a cumulative report of everyone at Hopkins who'd been through it, and it would rank all these individual items and tell us how people were scoring. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to say, we need a course on conflict resolution resolution because out of 155 items for example uh the top item that people said no my person never does this is um uh, confronts problems early before they get out of hand Ah. so for example it gives you kind of a training development a training needs assessment Yeah. yeah uh as a result that you can with some confidence then start designing courses yeah 
I love it. I know you've um, talked about the past strategies when you teach in our leadership programs for people who think about building their own programs, this idea about there's no funding. And we all right. always know, you know, his, Hopkins is historically, administratively resourced, under-resourced, under-vascularized mm-hmm. for administrative resources. That's what mm-hmm. somebody always says. So we, we, and that's not uncommon to many academic institutions. There's very, very little excess money and little for training. Mm-hmm. So how do you broach this issue of um, people saying there's no money to do that? How mm-hmm. can people be creative around mm-hmm. opportunities to fund some of these things? So the biggest thing that Hopkins did is they built it in, they built training as an employee benefit into the indirect cost rate that they charged for research. And Hopkins does more federal research in the United States than any other institution. It's funny, Hopkins sounds like a small Ivy League school, Mm -hmm. but we get more money than any other university in Mm -hmm. the nation and twice as much as the next highest uh, recipient. So, and part of that is the Applied Physics Lab in Columbia, where we built the Hubble spacecraft and the Patriot missile system. So part of it is that Navy gets a lot of money from the Department of Defense, and they spend it at the Applied Physics Lab. But so for every grant or contract that a faculty member uh, brings in, we charge a 28% overhead and about 2 or 3% went to employee benefits. And so part of that money came to me to do training. And it was set up on a service account basis, um, and a lot of copy centers are run on a service account basis. So they say, oh, how many employees do we have? How much does the copy machine cost? Here's what our overhead's gonna be for the year, so here's what we have to charge for each copy to cover our overhead. And that's how they build back the costs. And we did exactly the same thing with training. We said, here's what a day of training costs. Here's the roster. If you sign the roster and attend, we build a benefits account. If you sign up and don't attend, we bill you. And people don't like that, of course, right, right. <laughs> you know, because they're used to an environment where ah, I got busy, I can't come, you know. But we said, no, no, we are good stewards of benefits resources. And if you don't think it's important to be here or you think you have something more important to do, that's fine. But you pay for it. Mm-hmm. Benefits doesn't pay for it if you blew off an opportunity that you signed yeah. up for. And so in that way, I'm so proud of this. The cost of training when I started to pay off our annual debt was $450 a day. I got it down to $75 a day. And I was doing more training every year because I hired people who could train on a lot of different topics. And we did more training. And you divide that annual cost Mm -hmm. across more people, you know, the cost per person goes down. Love it. So that's the way we we set it up financially. It really worked. And it it's hard if you don't have that kind of a resource of grant money coming in to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, so the other strategy, I think, is just to hire people who are interested in a lot of different topics. Mm-hmm. And so, for example, I had a woman named Wanda King, who was one of my trainers for a long time. And the way we brought the cost down is Wanda and I did a lot of training ourselves. We weren't hiring, 
you know, if you hire a consultant from outside, that can cost ten or twelve thousand dollars a day is what they want to charge you. Another strategy I used was just to say, "I'm sorry, we're a university. I don't pay that." <laughs> you there know, you go. I can promise you, I never pay more than forty five hundred dollars for a day of training, and that's what I'm able to offer you. So I just set a standard and said. I'm this sorry, a, but yeah. we can't afford what what a for-profit business can afford. We're not for profit. Of course. And guess what? People they are willing to exactly. accept that. <laughs> exactly. We we've had some colleagues from Cary Business School here at Hopkins who want to come and bring their financial literacy courses or business communication and they say, "Well, I charge $5,000." to give a two or three hour course. And I say, well, good for you, but we're not, we're not to us here, not. Right. And, and they're our own colleagues at Hopkins. And I think, oh, wait a minute. When school, they, they invited me to go there to talk about my WAGs thing and I didn't pay me anything. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, that's why they're business people. This guy who's an that's assistant right. professor was going to charge me 5000 And here I'm an associate professor, associate dean, and I went there and tra-la-la, did it for free. Right. So right. that if you don't have that mindset, right. you know, you, and it's, you it's, see, he didn't have to travel anywhere. No. That's the price he charges people across the country. But you're right here local. Right. Um, so you can talk them down, you know, by just saying, um, uh, you know, but you don't have to travel uh, because you're local. Maybe we can do it more often. Yeah. Uh, you can use the Hopkins name as one of your clients. Right. I'm happy to write a letter of support. If you're looking for a client somewhere else, you can refer them to me. You know, I'm right. happy to help you build your program and make get those big and, bucks from other universities. Yeah. Put, you put your, yeah, put your book or article on the website so you can be creative about helping negotiate mm-hmm. those kind of arrangements. The other thing that popped into my head as you're talking as as we're thinking about helping people build programs on a shoestring is philanthropy I'm recalling my time at Penn State Behrend where um, I co-directed an applied research center the Center for Organizational Research and Evaluation with my colleague Dr. Uh, Carl Calgren, now deceased, but our local benefactor, uh, Miss Susie Hagen who was one of the founders of Erie Insurance was I sat next to her at some luncheon for teenage pregnancy prevention. I had no idea who she was. Built a relationship with her, and lo and behold, she ended up really loving what we were doing, and she Mm. wrote us a check. Mm. Similarly, at Rush University Medical Center, uh, one of the trustees was uh, Carol Siegel, and she and her husband founded Crate and Barrel. So then when we built the research mentoring program, they really love this idea of helping our young junior faculty members be successful and build research careers. So then they wrote a check and then they supported us. So those kind of the corporate or or foundation or philanthropy dollars of local folks who really get your mission and they want to support research or teaching or clinical practice and they, they believe in the mission of the academic medical center is another opportunity for folks who might want to support some of Some of the, whatever the functions, leadership programs or whatever. And another idea along the lines of uh, philanthropy is getting your past participants to give you their time. One of the big mistakes I think we made 25 years ago was not saying to people when they entered our leadership program, because when we first started, people said, I mean, I actually had 25 years ago, I had a dean say to me, Linda, it would be insulting to invite a faculty member to a leadership program. They're all leaders already. 
And it's true, they are dynamic, wonderful, highly successful people, but that doesn't mean they won't benefit from a leadership program uh, and from building you know, the community that you build from having people come together in groups. And so I wish we had said, we're inviting you to this leadership program and your deliverable at the end of the program is to create an hour session or a three hour session or a day long session, your choice, on some point of leadership that you want to become expert at, that you can offer, that we can put on our website, we can offer to departments planning a retreat. Uh, it can become part of your expertise, part of your curriculum vita, yeah. part of what you're available to Our do. Our speakers bureau, yeah. building a bench, succession planning. And it, but it's got to be more than just, I'm going to come in and talk about my lab. You yeah. know, good course design says you have to begin with course objectives that say, here's what people will know at the end of this talk. Right. And it's really just that simple. You yeah. know, they will know how to read a financial statement. They will know how to supervise staff. They will know, and there are better verbs that I could come up with um, if I had a little more time. You want to get verbs that absolutely describe the behavior you're going to see at the end of it. Know is one of those um, verbs you can't really see people yeah. knowing. But, uh, you know, they, they will be able to tell you the right. five things that uh, supervisors need to do to track work, for example. Yeah. And so, um, and you could help them develop that. Right. You know, if I'd done that 25 years ago, we would have a thousand mm, mm. topics that I people from Hopkins could come talk about all right. over the world. And they could give it part of their professional societies as yes. an, a standalone or a, a workshop or yes. something in addition or other than their science, yes. but it could be yes. building up the junior folks in their professional society. Right. So, yeah. And there's so much written that. about that. They don't have to recreate it. Somebody said that leadership is the one topic where uh, so little is known, but so much is written. Uh, exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know, if you want to talk about a certain point of leadership, you can just do yeah. Amazon and find 10 books and then adapt them to your field of medicine. Of course. So um, I wish we'd done that. And why didn't we? Well, because everyone is protecting faculty time. Mm. You know, everyone is saying, right. oh, they're so busy. Yeah. They don't have any more time. We can't ask that of them. But yet that is how people become committed yeah. to leadership development is by asking them to do something. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever built a skill or got interested in something by doing nothing. nothing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's counterintuitive, but but people really spend a lot of time trying to protect faculty time. Yes. And I think with, with justifiable reasons about burnout, as we all know, and yet you're so right. I think you know, what's the point of doing these leadership programs when we have so few leadership positions at certain level that we hear over and over mm -hmm. and over again, our faculty say, we say, do you aspire to be a section director or department director or a dean or something? And they say, no, not really. Or that why bother? Why should I stick around here? There are, I can count on one hand how many leadership positions right. there are. Well, if you shift that frame, the way of thinking about that too, I can be a leadership, a leader in a role I can create right by myself mm -hmm. and create opportunities. Right. And one of those opportunities would be to develop some expertise in some niche area that you love, that, you know, makes, mm -hmm. makes you feel good, that makes you feel like you're giving back. And time and time again, as you know, as I've shared with friends, when I send an email out saying, Hey, all points bulletin, we need somebody to do 
blah, blah, blah. I get emails back right away. People like being mm-hmm. asked. Yeah. You know, if it's, they don't, of course, they don't want a huge, huge commitment, but when you, uh, value them highly enough to say, I remember you from the junior faculty leadership program. Uh, we need a person to come and do this. Would you be interested? I'd be happy to work with you and review your whatever. I think people are, um, pleased to know that they've been seen. Yes. And that they are on somebody's radar for opportunities. That's called sponsoring, right? So I I totally appreciate the fact that we don't want to burden our over already overly burdened faculty members. However, I always promise all of our graduates that, listen, you're a graduate of this program now. I will be inviting you to come and serve on our, as I do, our junior faculty resource advisory council, Mm -hmm. the senior advisory council, urging you to go up for the faculty senate positions, committees and task forces. And so what's the point of going to leadership program if you're not going to be like, okay, I've graduated. Now what's next? Now I'm ready to do it. So that is just a kind of a natural way of, well, put your money where your mouth is, graduates. Here is your opportunity. What are you going to do with it? Yes. Yes. And I think an important philosophy I've had over the years is if you build it, they will come. You know, that that right. phrase from the movie Field <laughs> of Dreams. And so, for example, we had uh, um, in um, before 2000, before the turn of the millennium, I think it was, there was a committee on the status of women for the university. And one of the findings was that there should be leadership development for women. And um, they were talking the way committees do. And this was a cross-university group of about 40 people. So everybody, you know, kind of, they didn't quite, they didn't even really know that there was a center for training and education that I directed that ought to be the obvious place to put court training for women because we have resources and right. we have me, you know, yeah. and we have infrastructure already. But they were saying, gee, where should we put it? Where should we put it? Where should, we? and they were just, rambling on the way committees do and just kind of, you know, killing time. And then there was a finding. And then the editor of the report kind of edited out the finding. And it wasn't until I, you know, you always have to read things after they're final. Because I looked at it again at the final report, you know, this 100-page document, and that finding was kind of gone. And I actually knew the woman who was the editor, and I found her and said, what happened to that finding that, you know, and it, part of the finding said that it would be located in the Center for Training and Education. And she said, oh, I didn't think that was so important. And the report was getting kind of long and I took it out, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> put it back in, you know, because these are the important key moments, <laughs> you yeah. know. And so uh, the women's program, I, I will take credit for starting it because I just said, okay, if no one else is going to create training for women, I'm just going to do it. And we, I created two full days, a course on influencing skills for women, because um, women are not influential. We know that. And the other was decision-making skills for women, because another thing we know from the literature is that women decide differently than men do, and that they are less confident of their decisions, and they tend to play down their certainty, mm. and that all of these things work poorly for women. And so I just started offering it in our public program. And then kind of the history was that um, a colleague of mine who I'd known for many years, uh, Lisa Heiser, Mm -hmm. 
was working in the Office of Faculty Development, and she and Dr. Barbara Fivish got together and said, Linda, could we partner with you to create a program for women? And we turned those two days into four half days of training and started offering it. And every time we've ever offered a program, people begin by saying, oh, well, you know, maybe you'll get 10 people to apply, you know, don't be disappointed. We had like 50 women apply yep. immediately. We still do every year. And we still year. do every year. Mm-hmm. That And so uh, another important strategy, I think, is to call it a pilot. Mm-hmm. You know, when you get that pushback that, oh, faculty are so busy, they don't mm-hmm. have time, just say, well, but we still want to make it available for them, yeah. and they can decide if they have the time or not. And you will be overwhelmed by... Um, the response you'll get. Yeah. The first time we offered the JFLP, um, we had to close it after we got as many people as would fit in the room. Right. And then department chairs started calling our boss, Dr. Janice Clements, saying, well, you've got to get this person in. Can you make space? Can you make space? And it got to be so bad, she had to create a second class the same year. Right. And so we did an evening session, and which normally I don't like doing things during what should be private time. But we said, well, maybe some people who are busy would rather come in the evening if it's only eight weeks, you know, eight times. And sure enough, that filled up. And um, Mm -hmm. so the common wisdom that faculty are too busy, I just don't think is true. Mm -hmm. I think people value leadership development. They want to be there. And that time time together and the time dedicated to professional development, self-exploration, recognizing that there's opportunity for improvement, and that bonding. That's so, as you know, the network. It's the most important thing. They love it. I've been evaluating training programs for 25 years, and the top finding is always always that the most wonderful thing Mm -hmm. was meeting other faculty, meeting Mm -hmm. other staff, meeting other people like me. I thought I was just a small part of Hopkins, but look at all these wonderful people across Hopkins. And it's actually kind of depressing (laughs) in a way because, you know, I plan a really great program, you know, and I study and I teach my little heart out. And you think somebody would come along and say, wow, this content was so insightful (laughs) and inspiring. But no, the most, (laughs) and a few people say that, but the majority, the big comment is this was important for me to meet these other people. You're exactly right. It's we 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 on purpose. I designed this year's junior faculty leadership program to have from nine to twelve, nine a.m. to twelve noon. But the last half hour, I made sure all content delivery stopped at eleven thirty, so they still had that half hour protected in their calendar. But we made sure that that was for socializing and networking. So we put all their favorite music because before the session started, we said, give us your favorite songs. So we put a little montage together of all everybody's favorite songs and some favorite pictures. So Sydney put a nice little rolling slideshow of favorite pictures. So we put the pictures that scroll through. We put the music on. There's food, of course. And they just gab. They sit and they talk and the energy goes through the roof and there's laughter and there's taking notes and there's discussions that are serious and corners of the room and they love it. And people have written grants together. Last year, two of our uh, JFL peers met for the first time in the leadership program and came Whoa. from basic science and clinical, wrote a grant, got funded. So really, uh, scholarly, you know, products can result from this and just the 
the, the personal relationships of Geb, knowing that so I'm important. not the only one with a mom, as a mom, with a newborn who's struggling, trying to figure out how to do this and go give talks when I'm nursing and, and all those conflicts. Yeah. So this, that is just, that connection is so. We've had unique. women in the women's program set up play dates with their kids, you know, and really build some long lasting relationships yeah. that go on forever. Cause this work is hard. Yeah, I mean, and just is. to know that having, for eight weeks or 10 weeks of your life, that moment in time where you can remember having some laughs and connecting with people yeah. on a personal level, when else does that happen? There are yeah, no more break never. rooms, no more physicians' lounges. Yeah. People don't hang out in a lunchroom. There's no more water coolers. We've yeah. lost all that. So I think faculty development folks and leadership and training people, those are like the last kind of remaining places where people can actually get in touch with their human social right. side, right? You know, I have a great technique that that helps build that. I do think one of the mistakes I made over the years is owning the program and holding the program too closely. What do you mean? Uh, the, the, the senior leadership programs, not so much the women's program or the programs in uh -huh. medicine, but the programs across the university that I started 25 years ago, I really held those closely because I thought I could, first of all, because I was way confident I could do everything that needed to be done. Another fault of mine. <laughs> but also that I, I didn't want to give over control. And so I tried to get the president of the university to come speak. And every year I would go meet with his assistant and really try to include him. It was very difficult to get on his calendar for opening night. Um, but since I retired, I did uh, some years of consulting at Vanderbilt University mm. in um, uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And one of the things I learned, I had a Fulbright along the way and uh, lived in Japan for a while. And there was an activity uh, that they did in bars called Pecha Kucha, where you bring pictures of yourself and you show them in a bar and they flash on the screen for like five seconds. And you talk about yourself as a way to meet the people. Oh. So we started that at the JHU leadership program, the one for the whole university. We started Pecha Kucha and we had everybody bring a slide of uh, how they looked when they were young, how they looked uh, when they started their career, um, something that gives them great joy, uh, something, uh, I can't remember the fourth one. The fifth one was a picture that describes their image of leadership. And I would tell, and we'd make a slideshow, and I would tell them uh, each slide only gets, I'm going to show you how quickly I'm going to do this so you can't talk forever because when you have a lot of people, it takes hours to get through all their of pictures course. if you let them talk as long as they want. And so it works so well here uh, to really get people knowing each other the first night. Yeah. And then we would... Um, print out the pictures and give them all a copy. And I would see them in class kind of looking at that copy when people were talking to learn names. You know, they'd be looking across the room going, oh, well, let's see. Oh, that's John. Okay, John. You know, and they could look yeah. at the pictures. Well, in Vanderbilt on the first night, I offered up the idea. Here the uh, president and the provost were really supportive. And I said, let's have the whole top leadership team come and do their Pachacucha. Really? And they loved it. They did it? They did it. And they brought their whole leadership team, all the senior people, no way. and everybody did their pictures. And I always start by showing my pictures just to say, 
here's how, here's the pace. We got to yes. keep this pace. If we don't, we'll be here till midnight, you know, right. so they know it's got to go fast. And I control the remote. Yeah. And after a while, we just started putting um, uh, the PowerPoint on an automatic fast forward. But that worked great because everyone got to know the senior leadership at Vanderbilt at a personal yes. level the first moment of Talk the leadership program. I love it. So then at the end, when they had to do a project for one of the senior leaders, and the senior leaders could say, okay, I have a project here that I'd like to kind of sell the idea. You could do this for me if you want to. And at the end, they had a group project to deliver, but they got to meet each senior leader up front the first night of the program. Program. It works oh. great. I mean, you really, because yeah. people are so formal when right. they first come in and they don't want to screw up and they don't want to look stupid and they're afraid they're going to be embarrassed. You got to get past all of that. And yeah. the quicker you do, the better. But what a great way to introduce folks to, especially I'm thinking if they're new to a culture and that speaks to the culture though, that leadership team yes. that they embrace yes. that says yes. something about that culture yes. though. Yeah. There may be people listening going, that would never fly in my institution because my right. leaders would never do that. Yeah. But that is real. I love that authenticity of saying that's setting the tone for the entire right. course that we are people first and we're not these stuffed shirts. And I want to make it clear. It was my fault. What? That I couldn't get the Hopkins team to come do that. I didn't try hard enough. Ah. And I didn't know it would work. You know, I didn't have the confidence that it would work. But I think uh, you really have to sell the ownership of the program to the stakeholder who is the senior leader and involve them in some way. For oh, example, in the women's program, our uh, vice dean for faculty, Dr. Janice Clements, has always spoken at the program. Oh, that's right. You know, and she knows who the women are and she shows up and delivers one of the sessions. Right. And because she has to defend it to her boss. That's right. You know, so if she doesn't think it's valuable, we're going to be dead in the water really quick. That's right. So you got to do whatever it takes to get your stakeholders to know how valuable it is and to play some role. That's right. You know, and if they're going to be a boring speaker, okay, make them come do the welcome. You know, sometimes you have a leader who just isn't a good speaker and you don't want right. to include them, right. figure out another way, yeah. you know, yeah. figure out another way to give them something to do so they feel some ownership. Because if you hold on to the ownership, like I did in my early days of career of my career, when you're gone, the program dies. You know, the uh, program is then totally yes. dependent to on you person. and your personality. And that, you know, that, that is, that is a really, really important point. And I've noticed that about another one of our colleagues who does this so, so extraordinarily well, Dr. Cynthia Rand. Cindy Rand is our senior associate dean for faculty. And I was just sitting back thinking, I'm putting my slide decks together for going to, to the GFA professional development conference in July. And I was thinking about all that Cindy Rand has been uh, a key player in and leading things like the new clinical promotions track, the academy, mm-hmm. which is our landing pad for our retirees uh, mm-hmm. in the school of medicine, public health and nursing. Um, gosh, it was the promotions, the senior faculty. She did. It'll come to me in a second as I keep talking, but um, she onboarding. Oh, the on, new, new onboarding for directors. She has this incredible knack for leading an initiative, 
taking, I mean, taking charge and gets it done. And then she steps out of it. Oh. Yeah, because I was putting the slides together. I'm thinking, well, that she's going to turn the, the Academy over to Bill Baumgartner and Jennifer Van Beek, and they're running it. And she's like, okay, I'm happy. You need to she, get her to come she, to a podcast. Oh, my gosh. She is amazing. <laughs> and and this whole clinical promotions track, she was kind of getting everybody on with the task force to make it happen. Now she just, the report's done. She steps back. Mm-hmm. She wrote the report for the Academy, the senior faculty transition. She steps back mm-hmm. because she puts the pieces in play and then she's done and moves mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And so as you were talking, you reminded me like, that is exactly what Cindy does mm-hmm. versus my tendency would be, yeah, I've got to be dogging this thing constantly because it's going to fall up or get screwed right. up. Right. But trusting that people, once you build something and put good fundamentals or foundations in there and finding the right people who also are, care about it, right. then that does allow you as a leader to step back and go, okay, now it's, it's never about me, right. but you've put your mark on it, go on to the next thing. Yeah. With That's the women's program, when I retired, um, I, you know, um, Barbara, Dr. Barbara Fivish kept me on part-time mm-hmm. for another year or two, and I still do the teaching. But the administrative of it, all the reminders, the emails, all of that, I was still doing that. And um, finally, I said, you know what? Your support staff could do this, Mm -hmm, and it's mm -hmm. time for them to take it over. And if you model some of those behaviors that you think, oh, no, they could never do this. You know, if I don't do it, it won't get done. Exactly. You know, in fact... They can do it just fine. Yeah. If you role model it for them, you give them some samples, uh, you tell them, you know, here's when it has to happen. We create a checklist of what has exactly. to happen before an event, you know, or che- agreements mm-hmm. of who's responsible for what when we were working between three offices. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, one thing I wanted to be sure and kind of say to encourage people is if you want to get involved in faculty development, you can do it part time. And right. Cindy Rand was one That's person right. who kind of took a piece of her salary right. and said, can you support me 10%? Right. I want to do this and this and this. We've seen a number of people get into faculty development work that way. And then once they learn what's going on in the office, they can apply for full-time jobs all over the world. Exactly. You know, but it, you can keep the job you're doing that you're good at. Right. Um, and evolve. Well, look at Dave Usum, our Associate Dean for Professional Development. Dave... Dr. Dave Usum was a section chief for neuroradiology. He's a professor, neuroradiology, and he got an MBA at Hopkins and has a great mind for, well, for many, many things. The guy's freaking genius, but he got an MBA and wanted to, he identified a need. Faculty don't know how to read financial statements. They don't right. understand how the dollars flow. They don't understand the clinical revenue. They and here I've got my MBA. I'll figure it out. So he put together those two courses, the academic yeah. toolkit, how to build your clinical practice, and the economics of clinical operations. Yeah. So that's another example. And, and the he, mentoring, the master, and the master mentor program. And he and Jennifer, Jennifer Hathorn did. But that's exactly it, by identifying a need for something and then just sticking your toe in that water. So that could mm-hmm. be a way how your proposal of getting graduates of these programs mm-hmm. to dabble in and grow their own pie of con- contributing in the future and certainly minimally if nothing just helping the people yeah. behind them reaching down and giving a leg up to somebody else yeah oh love it yeah 
The other thing people can do is, uh, and one of the things I've done, because I think it's an important part of leadership, is to study assessments. And there are all kinds of assessments that are available for purchase that you go off and get certified in these assessments. Two of them that I've done thousands of times. Mm -hmm. One is the Myers-Briggs type indicator, which is so widely used and really a beloved assessment. The other I love is the strength deployment inventory, Mm -hmm. which looks at how your behavior changes from good times to bad uh, and in conflict situations. Another is the Thomas Kilman. So you can spend, uh, you know, a couple days, go off and get certified in an assessment and then come back and build a course around it. And some of them, like uh, a lot of people are doing crucial conversations, for example, uh, they even sell you the materials. Oh, now, here's a little insight. The materials that a lot of these vendors sell you are very, very expensive. But my position has always been, if we don't use your materials, we can buy your paperback book. I'll create my own materials, and I've paid you for the paperback book. Yeah. So as long as I have... You know, you've earned a little money. Yeah. I don't need to buy your manual. You know, mm-hmm. I can create my own stuff. And so um, you're really creating content that people haven't seen before that's valuable, that tells them something about themselves, and also how they compare to other people in the class. Mm. Because people tend to assume that everyone is just like me. And in fact, people are extraordinarily different. And to get develop these mental models of behavior so that you really Mm -hmm. begin to build a skill set around a more complex uh, structure in your brain of how people uh, behave uh, is a very valuable thing. Yeah, I'll be honest. When I first came to Hopkins, and of course I sat in the courses that you were running, the first thing I thought of the Myers Briggs is like this is this is goofy. This is this is sounds like something I'd take in the back of a Cosmopolitan magazine. This you know mm-hmm. check this that the other. But I and I had done similar things like not the what color is your parachute, but some kind of personality. Yeah. Are you a green or are you a red or are you are this and that? And I thought oh those things I don't know about it. But then I remember you talking about the science behind this, and I'm like oh this is something else. Then mm-hmm. I went off and got trained right. in it, and to this day. That Myers-Briggs, it has stood the test of time Mm -hmm. that the light bulbs go off in the room. That is the most interactive, fun, energetic session. Mm -hmm. Every session, every leadership training program, we kick it off with Myers-Briggs because it gets people, those fun exercises that you developed, getting people in the different corners of the room and laughing and So you can see the, um, whatever the scale is, you create an activity that points out what the people at the two ends of the scale answer to the question. And it's hysterical because usually it's so different. And people have no idea that it would. Exactly. That there's even a test that could put me in a category that would be so different from that other person's category. Yeah, and they yeah. just laugh and just. I remember all the pictures you show of show draw a picture of a house, yeah. and the cakes and just these different activities where people, like you said, they look across the room and they bust out laughing mm-hmm. or they're moaning and groaning, but that level of awareness, like. Oh, now I get why fill in the blank. My patients or the staff or the people in my lab or my colleague. Oh, yeah. 
you know, knowing yourself is the beginning of all wisdom. So that's yeah. the thread throughout of all of our leadership programs. Aristotle, you have to start with knowing yourself. Self-knowledge. And, and the fact that you said, yeah, just because you think this way doesn't mean everybody else thinks that way. Right. That's the basis of a lot of our miscommunications is making us miscommunications is making assumptions about other people. Right. So that and, is so fun doing those sessions. And I and, remember, honestly, and I'll even see people kind of at, at the beginning of our sessions who will look at me with that knowing look of like, <laughs> are you kidding me? And I'm thinking, and I always say to them, listen, before you roll those eyes so hard that you're going to break the windows over there, I've been there. <laughs> Humor me. Right. Just please give me a little bit of latitude yeah. here and let's try it. And then sure enough, those crunchy ones with their arms folded, being all like, seriously, I'm ma- wasting time doing this. They're engaged. They're laughing at you, right. laughing they're, you see the light bulbs going out because they're like, okay, now I kind of understand why knowing my preferences and other people's preferences has gotten me into trouble in the past. Right. And now I'm getting a new opportunities to fix this. So yeah. it works. Because they don't it. know what they don't know. Right. You know, and uh, they think that um, because they've been so successful that they can do what they've always done yeah. and continue to thrive. And they don't realize that the stuff they're not doing and the stuff they procrastinate about is the stuff that will get them in trouble. Every great leader, I'm thinking of George Patton, you know, the thing, he was such a great general and and everybody remembers him as this great general. But the thing that took him out was that, do you remember what it was? I forget the story. He was touring a battleground hospital and he slapped a wounded soldier because it looked like the soldier had a self-inflicted wound. And he he said, get him out of this place of honor, you know, and the nurses had to pull him off this, this soldier and Life magazine was there and took a photograph and oh, it appeared no. in the magazine. And that was the end of Patton's career. And what people don't realize is that's what happens to leaders. They go, you know, they gr- achieve great heights using their strengths, but it's their needs, their developmental needs that cause their downfall. And if you don't know the opposite of your strengths, mm. your developmental needs, you're just a time bomb ticking, you know, waiting to fall because you won't know what you're procrastinating about. So what was Patton's downfall? What was he wasn't it? a feeling person. Really he thinking. had no empathy. He mm-hmm. just had this standard for military tough talk and, you know, strength and focus. And certainly that's what you need in the military. But when there are wounded guys lying there bleeding to death, you don't slap them, you know, and uh, he just didn't have that much empathy to know that. And so, you know, any leader you can name, you can see the downfall that came from not knowing what their weakness was. Wow. Or too much confidence that I've been successful in the past, so I will continue to be successful. And in many ways, you know, 25 years ago, we used to describe how Hopkins was a mom-and-pop university, that everybody was just doing what came naturally, kind of like running the store Uh because they're smart enough to run a store so they can run their own store and... And um, Hopkins is a little different. I love this metaphor. A guy who came here from the Department of Treasury to handle finances said to me, uh, you know, Linda, most universities are like uh, a department store where the money comes in at the top and it filters down through the store president to all the different departments. But Hopkins is more like the mall 
where everybody has their own boutique and nobody cares how the mall owner is doing financially. You know, they're all just running their own little boutique. And I think it's true of a lot of universities that everybody just runs their own little store. Yeah. And they think, well, if I can do this, I can do anything. But a university does not need a shop owner running it, you know, to really be a leader of a major university. You have got to have a broad understanding of funding and legislation and, you know, international politics. And Mm. look how many of our students are international now. And everything the president says one way or another affects whether people come here or not, you know, whether they feel comfortable um, relocating to be students here. Um, uh, you know, you have to deal with a thousand different kinds of problems mm. every day. And it's not enough just to have the same skills that you had when you were running your own little center, your yeah. own little, you know, directing your own projects. <sighs> so that's yeah. why the assessments are important. You exactly. know, it really gives them language to talk about yeah. and it gives them something they don't know about themselves. And then they're willing to they open up and say, oh, okay, maybe yeah. there is something I could learn. What? I'm curious about this. When you were teaching the course, that's on the strength deployment inventory a couple of weeks ago. And I always like to sit in Linda's courses because mm-hmm. she tells the best stories and I learn something from her every time. And I, I mean this for six years you now. So I sweet. always go to her courses really because it kind. cracks me up. But when you were doing the strength deployment inventory, I went during a break, I went, ran back into my office and I pulled my old one out mm. and I looked at it and then looked at a 360 and realized, no, wait a minute, when was the last time I looked at this stuff? What do you suggest or what what is a strategy for those of us out there who ourselves, we're trying to be better leaders and we can take these tests and these inventories and do these trainings and we we know where our downfalls are, but how do we stay on it? What mm-hmm. is a strategy to make sure that we continue to, to grow mm-hmm. and to, to, to avoid sure. this kind of general patent thing. where Because right. I'm thinking of some of our leaders and we've known each other for a while and we kind of know ourselves and our and our, each other's weaknesses and we're in our little inner circles and we've asked each other to help each other out on some kind of like, you know, personal try to, you know, journeys of growth. But I still, I, I don't do a good enough job of really minding my manners, if you will, mm-hmm, around some mm-hmm. of those issues. So how do you, how and does keeping that, it in the forefront yeah, of your how thinking? Do, how do we do that? So there's always mentoring and we talk a lot about mentoring and finding a mentor who kind of can track your work and you can go to with problems. But within when I started at Hopkins, we had what is called the Office of Faculty oh, and I'm sorry, Office of Human Services. Mm. And that included career management, training and development, organization development and the faculty and staff assistance program and one other thing I can't remember right now but uh, organization development is a field and one of the things they do is something called coaching Mm, and so we're lucky at Hopkins that we have a lot of people who've studied they've got graduate degrees in organization development and if you are a very senior leader you can have a coach who will help you track your work in your organization by doing communication surveys, by helping you plan retreats, mm. by facilitating retreats for, me, for you so that you can sit in the room and be a participant, not 
not have to be running things yourself, you know, so that you're so distracted, you can't really hear what's being said. Somebody, uh, my former boss, Dick Kilberg, actually wrote the book on this, Executive Coaching, and he Mm -hmm. wrote another book called Executive Wisdom. And uh, this is um, uh, the field he kind of retired into. I was lucky that I could keep teaching the courses that I've always taught here at Hopkins. He really became a consultant across the nation to presidents of universities. Um, And so many, many universities will have an organization development office. Mm. And you develop a relationship with your own coach. They will want to see your assessment data. They may want to give you some other assessment Mm. data. There are a lot of assessments. For example, the strength deployment inventory has, which is normally just an assessment that we give people and they self-report. But there is a version where you can give it to the people who report to you and have them fill it out on you, mm-hmm. and you can see how they see you yeah. and your behavior, yeah. which is surprising. Right. You know, and it turns out when I did that, my support staff saw me as way more controlling than my managers did. Mm. Well, of course they would, you know, because with the support staff, I pretty much tell them what to do, yeah. <laughs> you know. But with the management, I might be more likely to say, well, what do you think we ought to do, you know? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, but I was surprised that. Everybody didn't see me as just right. the wonderful person I am. Yeah. You know? In fact, everybody has a different opinion of me. Yeah. So important to know. So, uh, so the coaches yeah. can really help you over time. And uh, most of them set it up so that you can just have a monthly phone call with them. And they just mm-hmm. say to you, what are you, uh, yeah. what are you working on? In fact, it was funny. Um, our wonderful first female head of surgery, um, Julie mm. Freshleg, right. Right, right. would tell the story about how Dick Hilberg, my former boss, uh, when she was hired to be the first um, department chair of the Department of Surgery, and there was some pushback from people who said, I can't possibly work for a woman, if you can believe that happened. It did actually happen. And Dick called her and said, um, you know, I would be happy to serve as your coach and partner. And, you know, I'd be happy to talk with you about the issues you're facing. And that really becomes kind of a confidant because it's hard to talk to your people who report to you all the time when you're talking about them to each other. You know, so you really need a partner outside your organization. And that's what organization development coaches do. I love this, Linda. And you're really inspiring me to think about some things. And maybe this Faculty Factory podcast community or the website, if you go to the facultyfactory.org community and put some comments in there, and maybe we can talk about this as the professional development conference, Actually, this won't drop until after that, but you get my idea, people who are listening, is that in my experience, like the co- coaches get um, the luxury of coaching happens at either an executive level, like the mm-hmm. high level, mm-hmm. people are being recruited for high level positions and they put that in the package and or for faculty members who are struggling with some issue, mm-hmm. a personality issue mm-hmm. or, or a problem, and then they get assigned a coach. Right. And I, you're making me think about this, the value of this, because again, I, I worry that I'm not in my level, uh, as an associate dean, not as attentive to my weaknesses. And now I'm, you know, worried about this whole patent effect. Then, uh, I don't want to end up being somewhere down the line five years from now and go, and there went Skrupsky. She slapped somebody, you know, no, and then, no. you know, so you, I'm thinking, we could probably get creative in our community with setting up some kind of um, 
learning community where we could match up with each other voluntarily yeah. Yeah. and voluntarily divulge what things we want to work on and set up some kind of check-in accountability partners that at least makes us mindful of some things in my calendar and oh my gosh I've got the call with Linda and I was right. I had promised to work on thus and such or I think that might be a nice way I would at least enjoy a partner checking in with me, mm-hmm. uh, like I guess like an Alcoholics Anonymous or a Weight Watchers or any other kind of support yeah, group or like the WAG, group. the WAG groups mm-hmm. where you're accountable yes. to. Uh, and that would be a cheaper alternative. Yes. Something more personal and manageable maybe for those of us who are interested. So if you're interested in that, folks, reach out, let me know. It's such a good idea. Um, I, I can't be too positive about it because over the years when we've tried to do support groups, mm. support groups have a tendency to fizzle. Yeah. Uh, add on support groups after the program's over. Yeah. Uh, they have a tendency to fizzle, but when they're good, they're really, yeah. really good. Yeah. And if only five partners in your group manage right. to keep it going, well, yeah. that's five people who kept it going or 10 well, people. I who hadn't kept even it been going. thinking about it in a leadership program. I was thinking more for us, Dean mm-hmm. levels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was yeah. thinking that we could start those of us who were in faculty development. Uh, the field that if we could be coaches to each other informally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You so. could. You absolutely could. And you know, the wonderful thing is you set up a confidentiality agreement up front where you say, you know, we don't, we don't talk about this outside of our meetings, but then it feels less like gossiping when you are talking about something personal that happened. You know, I think a yeah. lot of times professional people don't want to gossip, so they won't talk to each other about their stuff they're dealing with. Yeah. Yeah. Because it feels yeah, like, inappropriate. I don't want to gossip or I don't want to, I don't want to talk behind their back. Right. But actually, coaching does that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it gives you a chance to say, wow, I don't understand what's happening right, here. Can right. you help me figure this out? Right, right, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think this, this might be something that you've, you've, you know, helped me, uh, think more. And I'd like to think more about it. But the idea is, as we all grow and mature into leadership positions, we've probably seen many of our superiors move into leadership position, positions. And then there's a little slippery slope where, as you're saying, some of the, our weaknesses are magnified under stressful conditions, as we know, under mm-hmm. the Myers-Briggs. Mm-hmm. You know, how do you mm-hmm. at, react or act to respond when you're under stress? And the higher up the ladder you go, the more stress there is. And then we see people right. behaving badly. And right. I think it sneaks up on people. So that's what's right. making me nervous. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, you know, I know where my bugaboos are. And when I'm under stress, I know what I'm doing. And yeah. and the staff in the office know it as well. But I want to make sure <laughs> I nip that in the bud before it's five years down the road. And all those weaknesses have become so magnified that right. I'm just this, you know, giant right. cockroach. Yes. <laughs> people people don't know when they have a problem. Yeah. They, they don't. Uh, they over it's uh, the strength deployment inventory talks about overdone strengths that uh, mm. it's wonderful to be self-confident but if you're so self-confident that now you're arrogant and you just think you know everything right you know right. so from that's my top trait from mm-hmm. my my report is it's been wonderful that I'm self-confident because I feel confident talking to groups of faculty who are way better educated and way more impressive than I am. So I have the strength to do that. But it's bad that it got so arrogant that I didn't seek support when I needed it. Mm. You know, and mm-hmm. it's really taken a lot of thought for me to recognize you could have included a lot more people in this and maybe yeah. gotten even farther if you hadn't tried to hold on to everything because you're so sure you know what you're doing. 
Oh, I love that honesty, but I think a lot of us in academic medicine share mm-hmm. would probably share that same mm-hmm. trait. I bet you. Yeah, maybe some. A lot of people are very analytical, and so they become so nitpicky that they don't do anything. You know, they're just so happy to keep analyzing the data that they never say, okay, time to decide what are we going to do now? Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. They just want to keep analyzing and talking about it. Exactly, exactly. So we are probably just about out of time. And I wanted to just give one last piece of advice, which I think is kind of counter- (laughs) Intuitive. (laughs) We we have Jennifer, Dr. Jennifer Haythornthwaite comes and teaches a program in our program called How to Say No. Right. And when I thought about giving this piece of advice, I thought, well, you know, we keep telling people they should say no. But for me, and, you know, I am not as stellar as a lot of our faculty are, but my advice that my dad gave me a long time ago in the 50s, uh, my dad had been a forward observer in World War II, and he rode around in a Jeep with a guy named um, Bob Doffelmeyer. And Bob Doffelmeyer owned uh, 10,000 acres of fruit in California. And he was a very successful man. And he used to send us crates of oranges at Christmas. Mm. And when they arrived, that was like, oh, it's oh. Christmas now. <laughs> Mr. Doffelmeyer sent the oranges. <laughs> and my dad asked Bob Doffelmeyer one time, how did your family get to be so successful? And Bob said to him, well, my grandfather had the, um, ad- the philosophy, pick while there's fruit in the field. He said, and it only saved us a couple times. He said, like, if there was fruit in the field ready to be picked, we would pick on Christmas Day because you don't want a storm to come and ruin your fruit. Mm. And he said, it only saved us a couple times, but that was enough that it helped us do well over time. And so I thought, wow, that is good advice. Make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. that kind of, So whenever somebody would say to me, Linda, do you think you could do this? Could you speak to this group on this topic? Or could you do this? I had been saying like, nah, that doesn't really sound like me. But I started saying, well, maybe I could, you know, t- tell me some more. It kind of shifted my, so for example, uh, when I was on the faculty at NC State, uh, these two graduate students who had just started their own business and <laughs> their training and development business came to me and said, um, could you, is there any training you could do? And during my doctoral program, I had traveled to the People's Republic of China and Japan right at the point of time it was moving, opening to the West. And I said, yeah, I could probably do a program on doing business in China or Japan, but I would need a lot of time to prepare. But, you know, it was going to be big money if they sold a program to somebody. And I was a poor faculty member earning, I remember, $17,000 a year back then, (laughs) which, uh, you know, was about half what I'd been offered in industry. And I said, yeah, I could probably do that. Well, they came back the next week and they'd sold the program to a company in North Carolina that was going to Japan to do business. And I was like, oh, my God, I have nothing prepared. I have nothing ready. But I did like a two-week blitz. I came up with a program. It wasn't my best work. But then the next thing that happened is the the, uh, university, the governor of the state of North Carolina, came up with a Japan Center faculty because they were trying to pull Japanese investment into North Carolina. And when I applied, a lonely little female Mm -hmm. uh, assistant professor, I could say, yes, and I have a program that I've done for Gil Barco in Greensboro on doing business with Japan. 
I got that. I got to be a Japan Center faculty member. And I was shocked, you know, and I was the youngest person. I was the uh, one of two women out of about 30 men. And I was just shocked. And that was like the first thing in my career. And then I started applying for Fulbrights. And because I could say in my Fulbright application, I want to go to Japan and I want to study this. And I've been a part of the North Carolina Japan Center faculty. Damned if I didn't get a Fulbright. <laughs> and actually, the provost of the university called and asked to take me to lunch because nobody at the whole university had ever gotten a Fulbright at that point of time. And he could barely hide the fact, you know, that he was asking me, now, how did you do this? You know, you don't deserve this. How did you get this? And I said, well, you know, I'm qualified. I've got this program I do. And I've been a part of the Japan Center family. So that was really a big deal at that time to get the Fulbright. And it's only because uh-huh. I agreed to do this little program that I didn't even really want to do. Uh, same thing with Hopkins. When I came up here to marry my husband, I um, had had about six interviews with different universities, but I was sick at the time and I just, nothing had worked out because, did I tell you this story before we started Wait. talking or as part of the, um, as the, part of the, the podcast? Vertigo? The, the vertigo. The, yeah, I had yeah. vertigo, so I looked inebriated right, when I right. showed up for interviews. And I was living about an hour south of Baltimore, but a woman at Hopkins had seen on my resume that I had done a non-degree certificate program. And she called me and said, I'd love to talk to you about that. Would you come up here and visit with me? And so it wasn't even a job interview. It was just, could you tell me what a non-degree certificate program looks like? So I came up and met with her. We had a lovely meeting. And then she sort of mentioned me to Ralph Jenkins, who was at that time the director of the Center for Training and Education. And he, they created a position for me. They didn't even have an opening But they created a position because he told Dick Kilberg and said, you know, hey, here's this woman who's qualified. And and then Ralph retired and moved away a year later and I became director. So you just don't know. You you don't know what things are going to lead to. Like when you came up to me at that cocktail party, you know, and said, hey, I understand you have an opening there. Not that that got you the job, but it certainly earned our... Uh, interest in you. And we had such a lovely evening. So I think, um, you know, you don't want to say yes to everything to the point that you're doing things you're not qualified for. But you do want to look at opportunity. I think so many times we're so busy Mm -hmm. that like I remember one time uh, the person who was the current graduate administrator stopped in my doorway at NC State and said, um, would you have any interest in being the graduate administrator for this department? You know, he was just standing in the doorway. And I said, I was kind of busy, you know, I said, eh, no, I don't think so. (laughs) And he said, it'll give you a summer salary. And I was like, well, I have a summer salary. I teach classes during the summer. And then he resigned the next day and somebody else became the graduate administrator for the department. And I would have been much better at that job Uh. than the person they gave it to because most of the people who were coming wanted to be in my department anyway. So now there's an ag guy Uh who's the graduate administrator welcoming people into the training and development program. Mm. It would have been better if I'd been there to do it. So... My advice is pick while there's fruit in the field. Say yes, more, even more than you think is good. Say yes, and good things will happen. 
It's been so much fun oh, doing this wow. with you, Kim. I'll this tell is, you. I told you it was going to be great. It's so flattering to be asked my opinion about this. Oh, come on. <laughs> See, folks, I I, really I'm sure you, you totally understand why Linda Dillon Jones is one of my most favorite people. Mm-hmm. So, you have been listening to Dr. Linda Dillon Jones, Senior Consultant for Leadership and Faculty Development here at Johns Hopkins. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.